0: Game of Thrones, oh my god. And there's dragons, you gotta watch it. You see them, keep... there's this fight scene in and, fire. and the guy, really Winter's small. Oh, I'm a I'm not I'm not helpless. the I see dead. Watch your god. Dead. God. A guy. So, it's or a, so, a girl? girl. Like, Seriously, okay, we gotta see it. What's It's a chicken. What his hair, wedding. Cool. Cool. I cannot
1: give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our
0: Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones season review. I'm Jason Pistorino.
1: I'm Christina Lomangino.
0: And today we are reviewing the documentary, The Last Watch.
1: For a year, acclaimed British filmmaker Jeannie Finlay, also known for Seahorse, was embedded on the set of Game of Thrones, chronicling the creation of the show's most ambitious and complicated season. This documentary debuted on Sunday, May 26th at 9 p.m., one week after the series finale. And I know that was amazing for us. We were looking for reasons to extend our discussion around Game of Thrones. We don't want it to be over yet. So this gave us a two-hour documentary that delved deep into the mud and blood to reveal the tears and triumphs involved in the challenge of bringing the fantasy world of Westeros to life in the studios, fields, and car parks of Northern Ireland. The last watch was an up-close and personal report from the trenches of production, following the cast and crew as they contended with extreme weather, punishing deadlines, and an ever-excited fandom hungry for spoilers. They described this as much more than a making-of documentary. Quote, this is a funny, heartbreaking story told with wit and intimacy about the bittersweet pleasures of what it means to create a world and then have to say goodbye to it. And so I was trying to put my finger on exactly what this documentary was going to be about. You know, we didn't really know what to expect going into it. I thought of perhaps something like what HBO puts on their website afterwards, the inside the episodes, the making of. But this was really a story about the actual people behind this. And I thought one of the critics phrased this perfectly. They said, Much of the unsettled discourse around season eight focused on the observable story of the show, the writing, the pace, the plot. But Last Watch mostly steered away from those points, and from Thrones' known faces. Showrunners Benioff and Weiss don't give interviews, while the prominent actors and actresses speak just a few times. Instead, the documentary is a love letter to the Thrones folks whose names don't appear in the opening credits. The production organizers, the cast extras, and the various crews—costume, makeup, set construction, and so on— who helped to create the spectacle of the final season. As an example, a lot of what we see over the course of this documentary, we keep going back to a few people, primarily Andrew McClay, and this is a man who played a Stark guard for many years on Game of Thrones. We get his point of view perspective, kind of dispersed throughout the documentary.
0: Yeah, I thought he was a perfect, for lack of a better word, character to follow. And it looks like it was by happenstance. It's not like they knew they wanted to follow him. Actually, one of the crew members said, Have you met Andrew? you got to meet Andrew. He loves Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah, they were looking for somebody from the extras to talk to, but this guy was so much more than that. And he gave us our eyes on the ground, so to speak. Kind of like when we're in the Battle of King's Landing. It is so huge and hard to track. But now they show us Arya's point of view. as she's moving through the buildings and the streets. And you really get to see all of what happens. So much of what you wouldn't know. You could imagine, I suppose. But the sheer magnitude of the things that went on behind the filming and production. It's just incredible. And I love the way they opened up this entire documentary with the tapestries, if you want to call it.
0: Oh, it so cool.
1: They had pictures and iconic phrases from throughout the show's history. The things I do for love, you know nothing. We're seeing that as fun facts scroll across our screen, watched in over 180 countries, filmed around the world, the most popular show on television. So it was a great way of setting the stage. And of course, they discuss over and over again that while there are many filming locations, their true home always felt like Belfast in Northern Ireland. That's where this documentary starts. It was made over the course of the year, but began when season eight was beginning their production. We start off at Titanic Studios, the production offices, where we meet Bernie Caulfield, executive producer. She talked about the millions of different decisions that need to be made at any point in time. You know, She's there and she gets a call. They're talking about... Figuring out that the dire wolves can run up to 30 miles per hour. So you just imagine taking the dire wolves alone. I know, a a sore spot for some of (laughs) us, but the trillions of things that you have to think about that are going to go into this. What is this going to be like? What would they look like? What would they move like in that situation? How fast can they run? Somebody has to research all of that.
0: Just for that 30 seconds, maybe clip of them running in the long night
1: five seconds yeah
0: (laughs) but it makes sense because they have to figure out how much faster will the wolf be running in accordance to the men next to him
1: or the horses they're on or you know whatever everything done so that this can feel like and they say this several times true game of thrones they said every episode has as much as a feature film in it but done quicker and with less money Now, we think less money, $15 million an episode is a lot. But if you think about that one episode being almost two hours long. It's a movie. The size of a feature length movie that they get hundreds of millions of dollars for. This is really nothing compared to that.
0: It's pretty extraordinary when you break it down. Of course, we fully enjoy and appreciate every episode, but we never give ourselves the time to think about, wow, how did they do that? How many people were behind that? And I believe this documentary did a really good job of showing us that. I did enjoy that part for sure. Here are real people that you never see their faces. You never hear about them. That this is their life and has been for 10 years. Yeah.
1: They start out by talking about the different filming units. There were three major ones. Dragon, Wolf, and White Walker.
0: I want one of those coats so yeah, bad.
1: Yeah, that played a big role throughout the rest of this. That's how you would know what crew they were working on. And Kit Harrington gets his hands on one by the end. Good for him.
0: He gets it from Andrew. I thought that was perfect. It was yeah.
1: Like... How nice. He's like, of all the cool things that I've gotten from this show, that is even more awesome. I really want one of those. And then we went to some video clips that I thought were maybe the best to give me the emotional inside look and maybe more of what... I was expecting and wanted. I understand this is not the story they're telling through this documentary. We're not gonna have the big name people that we've heard so much of that have been in the spotlight for all these years, the Double Ds, the main actors, but I did want some of that insider knowledge. And these videos of the script readings were exactly that. I mean, they interspersed script readings from season one and then they went to this season eight.
0: I thought that was beautifully done. It got me excited. We paused it a bunch of times. Okay, who's that? Oh my God, I forgot about him. Look how young they look. It was actually a great way to tell the story of how long they've been doing this and how much they've all grown together. And the first clip of season eight is the Double D saying, we're a family. So as far as storytelling goes, I think is doing a fantastic job.
1: Yeah, as you said, just the difference. Now they pan over to season eight. Everyone looks so different now. I mean, Maisie Williams looked like a little girl when they first started it.
0: I kept thinking I would be so scared if I was her sitting there. Like, do I really belong here? Yeah. Just knowing myself.
1: Just icons, you know, the actors and actresses you're surrounded (laughs) by. And I love when they move over to season eight, you have the crew reading out some of the script. And then the actors beginning to rehearse their lines. And they describe how the actors are able to get those things ahead of time. But some of them choose not to take them, not to read them until they get into that first table read. Such as Kit Harrington, being the standout here.
0: We've known this for a while. Kit does not read ahead. He wants to be surprised during the table read. This one, you could see, we rewound it a couple of times. Wanted to watch it over and over again. You can see how intense he's reading through it. It's obvious he hasn't read it yet. And then he gets to the part where it's Arya who kills the Night King.
1: 20 emotions go through his mm-hmm. face in a matter of two seconds. You know, that shock. You can almost read his mind. It's not me. Oh my goodness. But it's her. But that's great. That's amazing. And then he starts grinning ear to ear and the whole room is cheering that it's going to be <laughs> Arya.
0: I, we might be reading too much into it, but we, we obviously know as a human, he wanted to be that person. And we saw Amelia Clark look up at him right away as in to read to him. check it. What does like, he like, think he about this?
1: I don't think it's reading into it because I've looked at a couple of articles since then that analyze each one of these actors' reactions and they felt exactly the same way as we did about all of them. For instance, Conolith Hill's reaction to his death sequence when oh. he finds out how Varys will die. The fact that he reads his final line and then literally throws down the script booklet before Amelia Clark has finished reading the rest of the scene.
0: Now, body language and psychology go hand in hand. He was disgusted with it, right?
1: And pushing it away from him. Like he tosses it out in front of him in the table and kind of like gets it away and then leans back in his chair. And he has been pretty open about some of his dissatisfaction regarding the end of his character's journey. And then obviously you get Kit hearing how John will stab Danny. Uh. And both of the actors, extremely emotional. They're both crying at one point.
0: Kit putting his hand through his hair, so intense. I was like, where was that acting during that scene?
1: Just film this, put a clip of this in there. It's brilliant.
0: It felt like being a fly in the wall to somewhere you're not supposed to be. And to be honest, I could have used a lot more of that. I really enjoyed those scenes. If they could just do an episode of a table read. (laughs) Yeah. I would love that.
1: Absolutely. I know at times in the past, we've gotten clips of actors' interviews when they first gone in. Just seeing it from... All angles, I suppose, would have been nice. This is completely the other side of things, which is great. But we know that the actors themselves are also having a lot of emotions about this ending. We've read some of the interviews they've done. And you can see by the end of it, Kit Harrington talking about how this has been his life for so many years. It mm-hmm. will always be that important to him, the work that he's done here. And these people will always be his family.
0: I think it would have been pretty amazing if we got to speak to the double Ds before that table read and hear what they're thinking because i wonder so they have to be feeling this way i wonder if they're saying a lot of our actors are going to be reading this for the first time i'm anxious and a little scared to see how they react
1: there was a couple shots where they went over to their faces and they were looking up at critical moments and kind of scanning the actors and it was like trying to get the pulse beat on how they're feeling about it yeah You're never going to get that again, that first response to what you're putting out there.
0: It did a good job of reminding me how much power or lack thereof these actors have. Conlith can't say anything. He can't change it. There's nothing he can do there to change it. He just has to take it.
1: Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we don't get a lot more of that, but they move on to these other really exciting looks, preparations of getting everything ready. They start out with Del Reed, Head of Snow. Talk Mm. about a department you never knew existed, but of course it must. And he's describing how in season one, there was just one forest Mm. that they had to make snowy. Since then, it's gotten bigger. There's more snow on the ground. He describes the process of creating it, that it's really just made of paper and water. But everything they have to go through from... Piling it up in the right direction, sweeping it out, making sure that the trucks don't ride over it because yeah. there shouldn't be tire tracks inside of it. At one point, they have to move the entire groundwork of snow they laid out because there was a change in plans. Yeah, and they're crazy. just shoveling it up to move it to a different site.
0: It's a lot of manual labor and a lot of uh, just dirty work. They got to. Get your hands dirty. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I'm sure it's probably thankless. Like he probably feels like this is a thankless job.
1: Who's going to appreciate the snow? (laughs) That at best, you're supposed to not notice. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to, when you're watching this show, be like, well, it's snowing there. Yeah, there's snow on the ground. We shouldn't even give that any attention. Another job like that, I thought, was Naomi Liston, location manager. So she was in charge of infrastructure, service vehicles, extras, marquees, all the logistics for running locations that didn't include their studio.
0: That is another thankless job and high stress. I was in a commercial. I was an extra in a commercial for Applebee's. Now, comparatively, this is tiny (laughs) as compared to a Game of Thrones set. And it was all in just one restaurant, but the head coordinator... Was running around everywhere. He was in charge of making sure everybody was set, moving locations, moving these people. It was insane.
1: I was just picturing one of my jobs that I work right now has been as exhibition coordinator. So you're in charge of start to finish everything, managing art shows behind the scenes. Yeah. These for a university. So it's a really small level. It's for student shows that take place on campus, but it's the same way that by the time I'm finished, hopefully nobody should know everything that I've done behind the scenes from communicating to people with people to paperwork. How is the show going to work? When is it going to go up? When is it going to come down at the end of the day? It's the student that gets the acclaim because this is their show and it should be, it's their art, That's on display here. And nobody will ever know who those coordinators. Mm -hmm. I have found that if the name includes assistant, coordinator, anything where you're running a lot of this stuff, but you're not the one getting credit, it can be like that. Um, Just sort of a thankless task. And they're showing all these little things. When are the trucks getting in? How are they going to park? They have to park this close to each other so we can fit all of them in there. Um, Just insane.
0: And you can tell she's a no-nonsense woman. She will not take it.
1: Probably how you have to be. The next great look came from inside with Vladimir Ferdick and the other people in charge of stunts Rasta Paranov and Roli. Lamb. I don't know how to pronounce their names, but they're stunt coordinators and they're describing what the actors do on a film set. They do it inside of a tent. They figure out the way fight scenes would go, action scenes within the episode. So by the time the actors get there, it's all coordinated. And if there's going to be a stunt double, when are they going to step in? If the actors are doing it, how they're going to describe to them step by step, this is how it will go. And of course, they continue on later. You really get a lot of behind the scenes with Vladimir. And I thought that was incredible. One of the best parts of this.
0: Vladimir being the titular Night King.
1: Absolutely.
0: You know, I often thought this. It's just a funny thing in my head. I always thought that the Night King's walk was a little weak. It wasn't cool enough.
1: You want a more swagger?
0: A little more swagger. Okay. Okay. And now you can see, now that I know Vladimir, it, it was too laid back because I think Vladimir's kind of a laid back dude.
1: Yeah. Seemed like. I think that's why he's really good with a lot of these nonverbal depictions coming from a guy who is a stunt coordinator and a yeah. choreographer. That's probably the way his brain goes a lot of the time. And then finally, they talk to David Nutter. First, they're showing his assistant and yeah. all the things he goes through, a glimpse at Nutter's methods. You know, most of these people have their scripts sent to them digitally now, but he still wants all of his printed.
0: On specific paper.
1: Takes notes on specific kinds of paper. He has a real procedure
0: to the way everything's going to go. And right away, you said out loud, that guy's job is hard.
1: Oh my goodness. The assistant to him, whenever you work (laughs) for somebody like that. And I have. Most of the times, they are brilliant. Their work is genius because of that. The way they need to function and mm-hmm. the things they need help with—it's not easy. And it's
0: very particular. You can't mess up.
1: And you—you you could see how well the assistant knows him. That kind of paper? No, 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 no. It's got to be this. It's got to be on that. It's got to—he's like freaking out <laughs> when the Xerox comes out upside down. But then you hear from Nutter himself saying the consequences of the war that's coming and how it affects people is what they want to portray. Quote, I want the journey to be just as important as the end product, because the journey is what you remember. And he also talks about his personal struggles. After directing seasons two, three, and five, he had to step away for a while due to back issues and him needing a couple of surgeries.
0: I remember us discussing that he wouldn't be back for last season. I I guess I didn't realize it was two seasons that he was gone. Six
1: and seven, yeah.
0: But we had assumed it was for a movie because he was busy doing a movie.
1: And I don't think he really said why at the time, or if he did, we didn't hear that interview. Yeah. Here he's opening up about it and saying while he was gone, he missed it so much. Quote, this show saved my life. Then we moved to the first morning of filming, starting out with the first scene of the season. And they open up on Amelia Clark going into a trailer. It looked like it was still dark outside. The sun hadn't even come up yet. They're talking about some days they have to get ready at 3 a.m. And they're putting on her iconic Daenerys Targaryen wig. But we didn't realize everything that went into... Just that wig. You know, they're not just covering up her hair and then putting the wig on. They have to braid and clip back her regular hair, put the skull cap on... Then paint the cap so that it looks like her skin color, so that the roots of her original hair, and even in later seasons, her hair is much blonder, but they don't want any of that showing through. That's all before the wig even goes on. (laughs) And then needing to pin it in the right place. As the scenes are shooting, they're freaking out because the hair is like... Freezing. You know, coming undone a little bit. And I suppose season after season, it gets a little more disheveled. So they were saying by this season eight, it didn't really have much life left in it. Sort of, thank goodness, they were about to be done.
0: Those wigs are expensive.
1: Mm-hmm. You don't want to have to try to duplicate that now in later seasons. If it doesn't look exactly like what her hair did before, that's going to be very obvious.
0: Yeah, because, but- you know, coffee mugs <laughs> will mess it up but her hair.
1: Well, listen, I think both. This is a big part of what you're seeing when you're looking at Danny. What, what is her look? And another one of those people that she's probably spent hours and hours with every day, every time she's there filming. This woman who's getting her wig on right. The people who do her makeup every day. You can imagine she probably became very close with them. So she's getting very emotional at the thought that there's not going to be that much time left with them doing this.
0: Hey, did you know, this is a fun fact, nothing to do with Game of Thrones, but it made me think of Game of Thrones, that legally you can't have a contract with an actor for more than seven years. Meaning you can't contract them to be a part of a show or a movie for more than seven years.
1: How did they do it with Harry Potter?
0: They probably renewed it
1: after. Okay. Huh.
0: Or maybe that wasn't in place back then. I just know now you can't.
1: I wonder because they had talked a lot initially about this being nine seasons. And so some of these actors would have had contracts way longer than that.
0: Because obviously we don't know the details. We're just regular fans, but... I'm wondering if after this year, just like you said, if it's time for a new contract and that's when the bubble pops and that's when everyone gets like three times more money.
1: It was already headed in that direction. We heard interviews and reports about how the main actors sat down prior to the season and there were renegotiations. They were going to be making a lot more each episode and that's just their pay. You know, we talked about that in the prepper episode. Forget about everything else. $15 million per episode production costs, the advertising costs.
0: And now looking at the background and seeing how many people are involved, I kept thinking all of those people are getting paid. But I also kept thinking, I bet some of those people are getting paid nothing, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, those extras? Yeah.
1: Probably not, unfortunately. I think that was a big portion of this documentary. These are the people that don't have their names splashed everywhere and aren't making millions of dollars per episode, but without them and their efforts collectively, the show never becomes what it is. It takes all of those people. And being a behind-the-scenes person in many, many of my jobs, I can really understand how difficult that can be at times. You just want to tell everyone, I was part of this. Mm-hmm. Not even from a selfish place of wanting credit, just an emotional place of wanting to be involved in what that feels like. I took part in Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, check out my jackets. <laughs> you know, I agree with you, and I thought that was beautiful about this episode. But I would, if I'm going to be completely honest, I would have liked it to be sprinkled in with us following a main actor. Or even Tormund. You know? Yeah. Let's follow them. doesn't have to be John
1: or Danny. Yeah.
0: Let's follow them throughout that year and get to see the people in the background as well.
1: Mm -hmm. It was two hours long. I think they could have done both. This, I think, was a very deliberate decision.
0: There was a point where I felt like they were kind of beating us over the head with, look how hard we're working. The phone call to her family, that was good, but it could have been a little shorter.
1: The woman who's part of the prosthetic designers, we're going to talk about them in a minute because a lot of the episode... Screen time was given to her. And as an artist, I fully support giving her that credit. It's amazing what they accomplished. We're talking about Sarah and Barry Gower. They were one of the people, one of the teams, who quoted work for Game of Thrones and were chosen. They spoke about how wholly unprepared they were in the beginning. They didn't have a crew. They didn't have tables, anything.
0: I appreciated all that.
1: And now they're to the stage where they were readying The mummified whites for their first appearance in filming.
0: And how nervous they were when the Double D's would come in. I hope they like it.
1: They knew they were going to be there (laughs) watching this. And what were they going to think about it? So this is brilliant. It's amazing. These people went to bat with tons of other artists, designers that were putting in quotes. And they won. They have their own success story here to talk about. But I did at times feel like it was very much put in your face to show you for the fans who had issues with this season, ways that they'd wish things had gone or stuff that they didn't get to see. Don't forget all of these people who probably didn't influence those decisions, who worked so, so very hard. They deserve a lot of credit. They deserve to be remembered that way. But I think that both things can be true. Yes. And I think it's gotten very vehement on both sides. Now you have people working within the show almost coming back at the fans, having a response or a reaction to the fans. And I'm there wondering, is this what my inside look should be about? You know, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get some fun facts about the making of these things. or so much I wanted to know. For instance, we're going to talk in a minute about the Werewood tree. hmm We got about two seconds of seeing how that tree was made. And I was saying, isn't that what this documentary is about? I want to see that. How was this iconic tree that I'm never going to see again on TV made? What went into that? And when I was doing my research, I went back to previous seasons where they actually had a whole three minute video on the guy who created the leaves for the Werewood tree. How did he do that? I suppose I was looking for a little bit more of that, perhaps. Well, then we move over to the first week of night shoots. And we knew from everything we'd heard in behind-the-scenes interviews, this was grueling. Yeah, We'll talk about those stats in a minute. Here, you have Miguel Sapochnik readying the set, prepping some of the actors. You have clips of him talking to Sophie and Maisie for the scene where they're standing atop the battlements of Winterfell, getting ready to see the undead army approach for the first time. They're speaking to each other, considering, this is the first time we're both going to see a white." What would our reactions be? How should we look? And Sapochnik comes in to say, well, you know, you're not actually going to see them here. They're so far away. They're going to be approaching in a horde. It's nighttime. It's going to be more about your anxiety yeah. of what's still to come. So maybe it should look like you both have a stomach ache. let's say. Brilliant direction for how do we play this out?
0: Described how we would feel too. That was the best part of that episode for me was anxiety of what's to come.
1: Yeah, their facial responses should then instigate those emotions in you as the viewer, Certainly. right? So the directors, producers, they need to consider all of this, and then they need to figure out a way for the actors to show that to you on screen. Then we went back to Vladimir Ferdick. I was glad about this. We're on the Winterfell set. He's discussing his history. And he talks about how for 33 years he was a stuntman, always the shadow behind the actor. Now he was acting as the Night King. He talked a little about his childhood, growing up in Czechoslovakia, and he was falling in with a rough crowd. Quote, he was on the borderline of becoming a gangster when he decided to become part of shows instead. And how that really changed the whole course of his future, where he could have been versus where he is now. He also talks about how the makeup changes you, that once he would go in and get his prosthetics and everything to become the Night King, it put him into that character. And a little bit about his thoughts on what that would be. Another area I really was hoping to hear, stuff like this. Mm. So he talks about the Night King's journey, saying, I think he's angry. He didn't want to be the Night King. The children changed him. So now he's sort of, okay, I'll kill you all. I'm the (laughs) Night King. So cute. Him and Isaac, just chilling in the tent.
0: I thought that was so funny. It's like, there's the two nemesis just hanging out in a tent.
1: Waiting. Complaining
0: about, hurry up and wait, hurry up.
1: (laughs) Just sitting there, not really saying a lot. This is where they also showed that brief glimpse of the Godswood Tree. And talking about it's their seventh year building it.
0: I I found it strange that that guy knew how it ended. I was like, I thought this was secret. How does the tree guy know how it ends?
1: And then they cut over to... Vladimir and some of the other main actors being like, I don't, I don't know what's coming. What's <laughs> going to happen? And the tree guy's like, no, nah, I know. <laughs> I know what will happen with the Night King. I'm like, what? But then here's this guy saying, admittedly, he doesn't really know the history of what a weirwood tree is or all the specifics about it, which I thought was kind of a shame. It was really sad. I know.
0: But you know, I guess you don't need to if you're building a tree. But uh, if I was part of the show, I'd probably... It's just me. I would know everything about it. Wouldn't
1: you it. want to? Yeah. Like, this is the thing your life is revolving around now, right? You're the wherewood tree guy. I would do all the research in the world on what in the heck is a wherewood tree? I mean, as a watcher, what do you know about the heart tree? What do, what do they mean to you? Me? Yeah.
0: Well, I know in the books, just based off of what you've said, there's a lot more meaning to it than they give in the show. It's the magic in the north, it's the children of the forest power. It's the source of their power, and even though they don't exist, that power still exists. And I believe um, it's the main power source, quote unquote, for Bran.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are these species that were originally found all over Westeros. This kind of tree now most commonly in the north and beyond the wall. And the show does give us that. It shows us what they look like with these smooth white trunks and red leaves. Again, you can watch that clip of how the leaves are created. It's pretty cool. Well, unfortunately, our fan has kicked on up here in the attic. We don't even have the AC running, but this fan comes on automatically, and we have no control over.
0: Sorry for the humming.
1: Shutting it. Sorry about that. Back to the wherewiths, though. You're correct. They were considered sacred to the children of the forest and the followers of the old gods. They believed the gods actually lived within the trees.
0: And that's why they made the faces, right? They they're the ones that carve the faces on there.
1: Absolutely.
0: Oh, it turned off. Nice.
1: <laughs> and the green seers could see through the eyes of those trees with carved faces. They were used to bear witness to important ceremonies such as marriages and oaths. Since they believed the old gods watched out, they would take such oaths in front of the heart trees. And we've seen that in the show before. That's right. It was also said it was impossible to lie in the presence of a heart tree. As we mentioned, weirwoods once grew throughout all of Westeros, although never taking hold in the thin soil of the Iron Islands. Mm. A plot point I thought would be important, but wasn't. And the children carved these faces in them during the Dawn Age, before the coming of the First Men. The men arrived in Westeros by crossing the Arm of Dorne and began to farm the land, cutting down forests and heart trees.
0: Ugh, we're such assholes.
1: This is what led to the children attacking them and eventually the huge war that they had. The two sides fought until it came to a standstill, and finally they agreed on a pact. They took this at the Isle of Faces. The pact said that the children would leave the land to the first men. The first men would essentially get everything except for the deep forests, and they would agree to no longer cut down the trees. In commemoration of this, all the werewoods on that isle were carved with faces so the gods could witness the pact, and this group of green men were formed to protect the isle and tend to its werewoods. Another place I thought we might see eventually that would have been cool, the Isle of Faces.
0: Now, before we had this pact with them, they made the Night King.
1: Yes, it was during these battles where we could not hold the First Men back that the show tells us the Night King was created. This is not book canon, Okay. or at least it hasn't happened yet. There is an old, infamous, sort of closest you can get to a leader called the Night's King,
0: that's right, and it's different.
1: In the books, but he was not this central current figurehead that was the leader of the group. They haven't introduced such a character who knows where they're going with that. And certainly there isn't one person that if you kill them, the rest of the troops will fall. So I wonder if that's something R.R. R. Martin's going to go with.
0: Oh, I wonder. So it could be completely different. Absolutely. Wow.
1: I do think also these Weirwoods, in conjunction with the children and the White Walkers, as well as with Bran, will play a substantially larger and different type of role, much as we believe the direwolves will in the books. And that's why I bring it up. Plus, it's just really interesting.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Green Chef, a USDA-certified organic company that includes everything you need to easily cook delicious meals you can feel good about.
1: Green Chef is a meal kit subscription service. Everything is handpicked and delivered right to your door. A wide variety of high-quality ingredients that come pre-measured perfectly portioned and mostly prepared. You can enjoy clean ingredients that you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. The recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. And I have to say that convenience is one of my favorite parts about Green Chef. I love these recipe cards that they send us. It breaks down your cook time, your ingredients, a little bit about the meal you're going to make.
0: Beautiful pictures of what everything looks like along the way.
1: Yeah, so that I know if I'm on track. And the recipe ideas are great things I would never come up with on my own. This time they sent us Caribbean Steak Rice Bowl. These amazing flavors that include a jerk spice blend, pineapples, cilantro lime cream sauce, and the other was a chicken and red pepper Alfredo. So it pushes our cooking to that next level. We're not just doing the same three recipes we always repeat.
0: I tell you, it's an amazing feeling when I get home from work and there's that box. And I'm like, yes, we're eating well this week. Christina and myself are so busy with these podcasts and our other jobs that we often open the fridge and go, oh, we forgot to go shopping again. <laughs>
1: Each meal has these ingredients that are divided up into color-coded bags and boxes. We can put it in our fridge. It's so easy to figure out what we're going to do for dinner. They make cooking easy. It works around your lifestyle, and you have dinner in about 30 minutes. It also includes an array of foods that range from global cuisines to classic comfort foods. The process is easy. You simply pick your subscription plan with options to feed two people or a family of four, choose your delivery date, and you'll get convenient deliveries right to your door. The meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore.
0: Plus, there's no minimum commitment, and you can easily switch up your meal plan and change the box whenever you want.
1: No grocery shopping, no meal planning, no guesswork, no problem.
0: And for our listeners, Green Chef is hooking us up. Just go to greenchef.us forward slash CKC 75 for a total of $75 off. That's $25 off each of your first three boxes.
1: That's greenchef.us forward slash CKC 75 for a total of $75 off. You can support us by supporting them. After the first men took up the faith of the old gods, they really assimilated to the point that they created godswoods within their castle walls. This is where that idea comes from. Like we see in Winterfell, they have an area that's called their godswood, and they planted a single weirwood that was known as a heart tree. That's when we started calling it that, not just a weirwood tree because of its importance within inside this family castle walls. And that's where they would go to worship their old gods.
0: Do you think the children in the forest grew some insane weed? <laughs> like, they got to be really good at that, right?
1: <laughs> I'm seeing faces in my trees. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we like to sprinkle a little of that information in. But back to what the documentary is showing us, we moved next to Iceland. And Kit Harrington said, since they first came there, he felt very attached to the place. It felt like thrones to be there. Others apparently agreed. At the time of this, they were filming the kissing scene, you know, where Drogon gives Jon the stink eye.
0: And the waterfall that was put in, in post.
1: Correct. And they were all discussing how important it was for them to return to that location this year, how it wouldn't have felt the same otherwise if they tried to just make it all green screen or whatever. Yeah. In fact, in the past, locations all over the island have been used. Most memorably, the cave in the northeast of Iceland, where Jon and Ygritte had their romance, their tryst. (laughs) In season seven, the epic battle with the White Walkers was filmed at the location Kirkjufel, known in the show as the mountain that looked like an arrowhead. I'm sure you guys would all recall that. They filmed on the north coast, on the southern glacier, and the otherworldly Black Sand Beach near Vik on the south coast. They have pictures of these locations throughout Iceland online and Amelia Clark mentioned it when they were filming, just how incredibly beautiful everything there was. But of course, then we move to the central heartland location of Ireland and they talk about this point in filming where they began receiving the highest weather warnings and proceeded to get the worst snow Ireland had seen for 35 years. Schools were closed, people were told to stay indoors, and obviously the site was shut down for snow and wind.
0: It's so funny that the snow guy's like, I can't do anything. There's real, real snow. snow.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and they were talking about this is the problem with filming during winter. Mm-hmm. Stuff they never had to deal with in the past. Also, the crew was explaining they were so tight for time on the schedule, things like this that shouldn't have been a massive problem became a much bigger deal. And they said, quote, I think everyone realized GOT has to finish because it just can't get any bigger. And this was a lot of the shifting things around, all of the minute details, the schedule, they're laying out day to day, how bad something like this impacted them, how much money goes into everything. Yeah. That it felt like a balloon that just couldn't go anymore. And perhaps this was a glimpse into why they honestly felt the showrunners. There are other factors in this, why it can't go past eight seasons. We've gotten to a kind of a tipping point. And then we go to Megaramorn Quarry. (laughs) I'm sure that's not correct. It's the site of the Battle of Blackwater, Hardhome, and Castle Black, and included the biggest green screen they had ever seen. They showed this thing. Enormous. They also hit another unexpected snag because the horses they had to bloody up for battle now came in appearing dyed pink. Oops! They had tried everything they could, but could not get them back to white. Um, I'm a little concerned for these horses. What are they putting on them? That blood that delved? Well, Can't get it I know. Out.
0: But it's probably just because they're so white. The Humane Society is there, so it's not harmful for their health. Mm-hmm. And it probably will eventually come off, but it's one of those where...
1: It's taking time. Yeah.
0: The horses must be pissed. <laughs>
1: We're pink. Also, they move over to the extras, who we find out weren't told much about their battle scenes until they arrived. And they learned that there would be 120,000 whites against 18,000 combined living army forces. Wow. So that's when they got the numbers of what is this battle going to look like. They also spoke about the longest run of night shoots for Game of Thrones, maybe any film, 55 days of filming, 750 people, near freezing temperatures. We heard Brian Cogman speak on this before saying, what we have asked the production team and crew to do this year truly has never been done in TV or movie. He talked about this unprecedented battle, saying it's been exhausting, but I think it will blow everyone away. We also spoke about in The Prepper how preparing for the shoot, Sapochnik tried to find a longer battle sequence in cinema history and could not, the closest being the nearly 40-minute Helm's Deep siege in Lord of the Rings Two Towers. And here you get more of those quotes from the actors just saying this is the hardest thing they ever had to film. You're seeing them all and they just look shot completely exhausted. I mean, you spoke about that scene where Maisie Williams had to film killing the Night King.
0: Yeah, and it actually looked like she was in pain when they yelled cut. That's commitment, baby. And how cold she was.
1: She couldn't even move like, her arms properly. Yeah. They kept, ha- they kept having to reshoot her dropping the dagger from one hand to the next. It looked miserable.
0: I know. I can only imagine on a much smaller scale, I remember we had to practice in high school football in the snow and it was so cold that every time you hit someone your hands felt like they were going to shatter
1: yeah same thing for cheerleading on the rare occasion that we would get times like that and you're trying to do stunting where you're throwing a human being up into the air and they couldn't feel their hands and when you're the person going up in the air man that's pretty scary you don't have those wire rigging
0: of course keeping you up there (laughs) so imagine that times 100 and that's probably what they went through i
1: can't it's crazy Hot can be just as bad, though, because I remember we had summer camps where we would train and we would go to a college campus. College or professional cheerleading teams would come help train us. The whole facility had no air conditioning. (sighs) So you're outside in 100 plus degree weather all day doing hard physical work. And then you go back to the dorms where you're staying and there's no air. Oh. We had people just passing out left and right, being taken away for heat stroke and ambulances. And yeah, they started to talk about that a little bit. They were all so happy when it was the end of the night shoots. But then they switched gears over to Seville, Spain, and they were all sweating now. It's, it's so hot. They also mentioned something very interesting here. We didn't get a lot of discussion around the secrecy for the filming that we did here Other sources talk about prior to season eight, you know, building that container wall around their constructed set of what would be now Dubrovnik, essentially King's Landing, and the drones that they were trying to keep out. But here they talk about how they knew it would be hard with such a big cast to keep everyone quiet. So they brought in a few decoy actors (laughs) for these final scenes in the dragon pit. That way the actors wouldn't know what was happening. You had the waif, Jackin, the Night King, Jon Snow.
0: They all were there. I think that's pretty genius. Seeing Jackin made me miss him more.
1: Mm-hmm. You're like, why wasn't he in the ending? Yeah. <laughs> so previously, this location, Spain, was used to show us the land of Dorne, mainly filmed in Seville, Dragonstone. They shot in the dramatic peninsula of San Juan de Guastelagatz? Your guess is as good Northeast as of Bilbao. This season, they returned to this amphitheater, it's a ruined Roman amphitheater that they used to show the dragon pit.
0: And we have a picture here. Wow. That's crazy.
1: Absolutely beautiful. We also saw these clips of fans that were lined up to see the actors. Kit Harrington driving through. And he's not even there to actually film. He's there as a decoy. Yep. Just being bombarded. But this was so cute because Vladimir's watching all of this happen. He's talking to the filming crew. And he sees the crowds of people lined up on the street. And he says... I wonder if they'll recognize me. Like, let's go see. He doesn't have any of his makeup on or anything. And he walks out and they all realize immediately who he is. And he just looks so excited. Yeah. Like a little kid. And he stays to sign autographs, take pictures. Pretty cool. He even does the iconic thing where he's <laughs> raising his hands. You just you felt so happy for him.
0: Well, I feel like that because of our podcast. Whenever we go shopping, it's like, please... I'm just trying to buy eggs. Please give me some space.
1: (laughs) We've been recognized one time and we were giddy over it. (laughs) Well, lastly, we went to the King's Landing set, which, of course, as we've been speaking about, was originally filmed in Dubrovnik, Croatia, for many years. But Deb Riley, the production designer, is talking about how they knew they wouldn't be able to shoot there to actually destroy the town, of course, what they wanted to do. So they spent seven months building the city on the large lot in the back of the production studios. She thinks all we were ever doing in seasons four through seven was training for season eight. Dubrovnik is absolutely beautiful. I stumbled across a website where they talk about all the different spots within there that they did filming on and about the town in real life. This is pretty incredible. What they call the old city that in filming winds up looking like the heart of King's Landing, the real city had a series of defensive stone walls that stretched completely around the town, totaling a distance of 6,360 feet in length and reaching a maximum height of 82 feet. The main wall on the sea-facing side is five to 10 feet thick, even thicker in other areas. The whole city was enclosed with walls in the 13th century, which were continually extended and strengthened all the way up until the 17th century. They were reinforced by three circular and 14 quadrangular towers, five bulwarks, and much, much more.
0: It kind of reminds me of playing Assassin's Creed, right?
1: Yes. The walls have been considered among the greatest fortification systems of the Middle Ages and were never breached by a hostile army during this time period.
0: That's because we didn't have dragons.
1: <laughs> One of the iconic things within that is Bokhar Fortress, built in 1461 to defend the Western Entrance Gate. It's the oldest fortress in Europe. In the show, we get season two, where Tyrion and Varys were planning the defense of the city, and they were looking out over the sea. Mm. They were on that fortress. More fresh in your mind, though, in season eight, this is where Danny and Drogon landed, sitting atop that tower as she hears the bells.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: And then you also have the Pile Gate, where historically the Lannisters bid farewell to Myrcella, Sansa and Shay sat watching the ships move out to sea. It was the main entrance to Dubrovnik's old town with views over the fishing harbor, a well-fortified complex with multiple doors defended by Fort Bokar and a moat that ran around the outside section of the city walls. And in the documentary, they're showing all of the people that are there to play the city folk of King's Landing just being given these directions you know, you're going to stream through the gates to the Red Keep. This is what's happening in this moment. And you go back to Andrew McClay talking about readying himself for those scenes. Emotionally, the place that you would be in as a Stark guard. Mm. Everything that you've been through. This is vengeance, finally. And how you would put yourself kind of into that headspace. Plus, of course, he's talking to his buddies. The other extras on filming. And something they kept interspersing this with was going to the food truck that served all of the actors throughout the course of this. Another group of people that I thought, how incredible. How many people every day must be coming there? Food, drinks, coffee, water.
0: How'd they get that gig? It's pretty lucky. Oh,
1: amazing. But it has to just be insane amounts of work. For sure. I mean, when she's talking about that sandwich she came up with for herself and then everybody came in and started asking for it. Now it's like a staple on their menu. And finally, they talk about the last day, Kit wearing the jacket that Andrew had given to him. The others talking about Andrew, how important he had been to them, giving them direction the whole time. Both actors talking about how the show had changed their lives. Kit said, it has never been a job for me. It's been my life and will always be the greatest thing I'll ever do. And then you have sort of this sweet ending where you're wondering what now Hmm. for a lot of these people that aren't kid harrington you know moving on to other television shows movies jobs what happens to andrew mcclay for instance so in the closing they show him giving tours now for the studio sets he seems like he has a brilliant personality for that he definitely does we had read before that starting next spring a permanent studio tour will open in linen mill studios where visitors can see original set pieces, costumes, props, and weapons used during the series. The show has brought a lot of tourism and income to this area of Ireland that didn't have that previously. Mm. So right now they have sort of exclusive set tours going on. I'm not sure if that's what he's giving, but there will be more of a general open to the public type of tour that you can take beginning next spring that'll go through all the different areas where they did
0: filming. I wish it was closer. I would definitely go.
1: Right? So not exactly what we had anticipated, but I really enjoyed watching the last watch. It did feel like it gave me a modicum more of closure than I was searching for.
0: For sure. And we have to remember that it wasn't HBO filming it. So that might be why she wasn't able to get the big stars for one-on-one interviews and things like that. But I believe she was trying to tell a story. And I think in those regards, she accomplished it. She told a very good story of the people behind the scenes that make this show work.
1: Yeah, something we would have never known or gotten to see. That's pretty incredible. And I do hope this is a launching point for a lot of them, that they kind of get that recognition now for all the hard work that was put into this. For sure. Of course, as fans, it doesn't exactly give us 100% of that closure we want. It doesn't talk about the show, the series as a whole, the finale, some of the questions we still have unanswered, the thoughts we want to talk about. We anticipated that might be the case. So for CKC, we still have one more episode coming up, our bonus, where we can do more of a series retrospective.
0: And we're putting together the notes right now. And I think this is going to be a really fun episode. So Clatchers, we implore you. You don't want to miss it.
1: I think it's going to be great. Just some of the things we're going to be discussing, our season Raven ratings and MVB, including your poll results. Just like we used to do for every episode, but this time looking at all of season eight, who's your most valuable character?
0: So be sure to keep a lookout on Twitter for that poll. And if you're not following us yet, at CKC Podcast,
1: We'll have our live or die results. If you remember in the prepper episode for this season, we went through a long list of all of the characters. I believe there were 35 total. And just gave our quick feedback on whether Jason and I thought they would live or die. So I have uh, the results. Yeah. Who won? How many points did we get? We also talked about some of our big theories coming into Season 8. Mostly new things that we hadn't been discussing for seven seasons prior. We were wrong about the majority, but we'll also go through that.
0: And to go back into our social networks, on Twitter and on Facebook, we're going to ask you guys to name your top three episodes of the entire series.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say we'll have a few topics, some that were about this Season 8, such as costume choices, interesting facts we didn't have a chance to talk about before, but some that are series related. So a few of the prophecies or visions that we got over the course of seasons one through seven, how they did or did not come to a culmination in this season eight. What are some of those open threads? And what were some of our favorite episodes of all time? Really restricting it, maybe top five because that could go on forever. And of course, we will get to your Clatcher's comments about the whole series and what are your feelings now that it's all over.
0: And in regards to the future of the CKC, by now you, of course, know that we will be doing bi-weekly podcasts on Big Little Lies, which is also on HBO. So be sure to follow us along there. We'll be playing those episodes on our main channel. So be sure to look up The Coffee Clatch Crew and look for that white channel cover. And that's our main channel. If you follow us there, you won't miss any of our podcasts. But if that's not your bag, be sure to follow us on all of our social media or any of our social media so that you'll be aware of when our next show is out and you'll know what we're covering. That might be another show that you want to listen to. Basically, I'm saying don't forget about
1: us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And in the meantime, we look forward to wrapping up this discussion with you about Game of Thrones. Give us your poll results, write in with any thoughts, and we will have the bonus episode coming at you soon.
0: But before we end it, of course, we have to ask our Clatchers what they thought about this episode.
1: Uh Melly says, I now know what the club means in Club Sandwich.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a great fun fact.
1: I didn't know that either. (laughs) Chicken and lettuce under bacon. Brilliant.
0: Kirk wrote, I was in awe of the magnitude of the overall project and reminded that ordinary people can do extraordinary things when given a challenge and a cause that they can take pride in. CC bosses everywhere.
1: Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Nicole says, I loved seeing the extras in Belfast. Seeing Andrew specifically, he was perfect. Totally agree. Yeah,
0: he was. Jenna saying, Watching now, Kit's reaction to John killing Danny. Tear emoji. (laughs) I'm really loving seeing all the amazing work that goes into making it.
1: Paul says, I got bored with it and didn't finish, but I was very moved by the footage and emotion of the final read-through. And I can see, as we said, if this wasn't what you were expecting after you kind of get some of those inside looks. Yeah. Not living up to your expectations.
0: Hopefully, they'll still listen to our podcast. (laughs) Jenna wrote, the actor playing the Night King, Vladimir Furtick, is hot
1: and funny. Get to see him without makeup on. Nathan says, Vladimir is so damn cool. He wears so many hats, and it was awesome to see him go from choreography and stunt work to being behind the mask. Also, was stunned about King's Landing taking seven months to build and seeing it created in Fast Forward.
0: Yeah, that was very cool. And remembering when we covered it a couple weeks ago, the fact that they built it first, all destroyed, and then they put a face over it.
1: It's like they went backwards. Yeah, (laughs) so that
0: they could just break it down. Zombie Man saying, yes, Danny didn't actually die according to this. She stood up and hugged people after shooting the last scene from what I can see.
1: You know why this is? We remarked on how crazy it was. The last scene they shot with her was not her final scene of the series. Right. It was actually her and John where she's where the wearing that northern coat. Yes. So I'm not sure exactly which one, but clearly they don't go in order with how they shoot the sequences, which must be emotionally a weird thing. Oh, for sure. (laughs) The last scene you're shooting is midway through the season somewhere.
0: Well, how about movies that shoot a few movies at once? For example, Harry Potter, The Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2, the last two, they shot together. And the first scene that they shot if I remember correctly, was the last scene of the movie.
1: Which happens a lot. (laughs) We heard about that with Bohemian Rhapsody. That's right. And then you wonder later, for ones that film multiple endings or things are a little ambiguous, really, the actors don't know how it ends, but it's all out of sequence. And in a show like this, tons of things are in green screen. You're not seeing what it's really going to look like. I imagine it is sort of confusing until you see how it all comes together. Jenna says, David Nutter's Barry Manilow montage. <clears throat> yes, I know. It was so cute. And Nick, I think they said they brought the waif and Jackin back for the finale to subvert expectations and they never showed them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, we haven't seen the waif or Jackin for quite some time now. Yeah. We, we thought maybe we would, but that's a good way to throw them off.
0: Nicole wrote, oh my God, the table reads. I'm so in love. Yeah, that was my favorite part. The table reads for sure.
1: Yeah, and Zombie Man mentioning, I think Barris was actually pissed when they read his death scene, and John was just as shocked as most of Team Danny when they read her death. Yeah. I loved that they had somebody to see that with on filming their genuine responses to it. It meant so much more.
0: Absolutely. So thank you, Clatchers, for writing in. I'm so glad we still got some write ins. I'm always worried when we do a big show like this, and you feel like you have all these friends, and then the next show, you're like, guys, anybody, where'd you go? By the way, if there's anyone who works at HBO listening to us, if there's any way you can get us screeners for Big Little Lies, even if it's a day ahead of time, that would help us out tremendously to get the podcast out earlier. (laughs) So a little wink, wink, if you have some pull. Yeah, I would. (laughs) And continuing the thanks for all of our Clatchers, I want to give a huge thanks for another week of great reviews on our podcast. Fan Correct, Christian14, user... GDHDU, Flapjack Jones, Mommy Audiobook Lover 2016, Elsie Harpist, Heather in Cleveland. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. We read them. We love them. And now I think better of myself for a little bit. And then... Just
1: for a little while. Thanks for coming on this ride with us. And we look forward to talking everything else in the upcoming bonus episode.
0: Till next week. This round's on me. This round is on me. (laughs) Try again.